I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, we're in the final paragraph of that chapter. As you're turning there, I want to begin just by saying the title, God's Plan A. God's Plan A is uh, the title because it's a title that kind of is a little bit of a lead-in or teaser for a big-picture idea that I'm going to try to make the point Regarding, and I think the text makes the point, and that is simply this God's plan A didn't fail. We're not operating on plan B, even if it might be tempting to think we are. When God came and began his mission and ministry by coming as the Son of God, second person of the Trinity here on earth, he was wildly rejected. Now, he was affirmed, but then abandoned. And then upon being raised from the dead, a small group affirmed him again. You might think, well, that, that's an okay mission. I mean, was he supposed to win everybody and win the favor of the world when he first came? Well, I would ask you to think of it differently. Jesus as the son of God was sent by God the Father And he perfectly submitted to the Father's will and executed his plan perfectly as the perfect son of God. Now let's transfer that to our thinking today. Here we are in America with the church. And it feels like it's wobbling right now. And there's pressure from the outside and sort of soft coercion for us to be quiet or to be censored or to not speak boldly or what maybe will happen to you one day if you're recorded as saying X, Y, or Z. All those things are on our minds, perhaps in the workplace. What can I say? Shouldn't I say? What should I do or not do is on our minds. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise, but the pressure is there and the pressure is on. And it could be tempting to say, why isn't the church triumphing right now? And is God failing at some level? I'd say I'd never think that, but maybe in the back of your mind you're tempted to. Or at least your mood is sort of revealing that you're not operating in terms of a victor's march, which we are on. God can't fail. He's not failing. But it might be tempted to blame the leader if things seem too hard or not turning out the way that you would rather them turn out, like blaming a coach for um, making you run too many wind sprints during practice, not seeing the big picture that that will help you win the game later. Or maybe you've watched someone as an artist, painter, begin to paint with some brush strokes and maybe a little droplet of paint here and there, and you don't see it. Really, things materialize right away, but then after a while, you see the painting fill out and come to full fruition. As a beautiful masterpiece. Jesus' ministry, just like this idea, it was proven in retrospect. It was proven in retrospect. Jesus came, he was amongst the people, he did the miracles, he did the work, he taught, and then ultimately was crucified. He was abandoned by the Jews. Not only abandoned, he was, he was, uh, sent to his death and executed by the Jews. He's the Messiah. And they not only didn't want him, they killed him and they apostatized away from him. 
So was this a failed mission? Jesus made sure that his apostles would not believe that the mission had failed even after he had died. And he did so not only by vindicating his death by being raised, but by leaving trailblazing markers along the way during his three-year ministry. Just like on a path, if you're on a trail and you want to be able to find your way back or have people follow you to where you are, you would trailblaze. You'd mark a tree or leave some kind of artifact or something for people to find and say, okay, I'm on the right path. Jesus did that with his miracle ministry, with his teaching ministry, all the time during his three years. And the apostles were able to, after the resurrection, go, oh, we get it. Because when Jesus was being led away by the Roman government, being crucified, being abandoned by the Jews, the apostles in like manner, abandoned Jesus. They fled Jesus. And it wasn't until after he was raised that they fully came to understand who he was. And then with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, they recounted the different miracles and things that Jesus said, just like finding the trailblazing markers along the trail to go, this is the path. And this is the mission. And I can be invigorated and encouraged to keep on keeping on. Even if everything on the outside looks like it's pressure and falling in on itself, I can follow these markers. This text brings us to one of those markers that Jesus left for us to recount. By the way, all of the gospels, all four gospels are filled with these markers. That's what the apostles did is they wrote these things down to trailblaze the path for the church to go back to the gospels and say it's true and Jesus' story is validated. He is the Messiah. He is the miracle worker. He is the son of God and this is the way of salvation. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recount for us. They recount these trailblazing markers. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have them and we have this one here. And this is a marker that is where Jesus is healing two blind beggars right before he goes into the triumphal entry. This is the gateway into the Passion Week. That's what we have here in this paragraph. Once you hit chapter 21, you're into the Passion Week. You've been had three years of ministry, and this is the last physical mercy ministry miracle before he goes into the triumphal entry. If you look at the miracles of Christ, the first one, um, turning the water to wine at the wedding of Cana, and then the last miracle you could say is the resurrection. You could also count the miracle of the healing of Malchus's ear, where Peter tried to chop his head off, got the ear. He heals that. But this miracle of two blind beggars who in particular are Jews is a marker of Jesus' ministry. And I'll give away the, the punchline. These two blind Jews represent the believing remnant of Israel. And why do I say that? Why is that important for Jesus to put a marker in the storyline of Jesus' ministry going to the cross, to put a marker right there, right at that particular point, right before he goes into the triumphal entry, he, he heals and he's validating the salvation of two blind, believing Jews. Why is he doing that? Well, the Jews are going to be very, very fickle all week long during the Passion Week. This is Passover week. 
All the lambs, all the Paschal lambs are being brought in. They're being slain religiously. They're all depicting Christ, who is the ultimate lamb, and they're missing everything. They're very fickle at first in chapter 21. If you want to kind of survey ahead through the last eight chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, we have eight chapters left. For several chapters, they're very, very fickle. The crowds are saying, Hosanna, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they're going to turn on him in a week by Friday and say, crucify him. The temple is cleansed in chapter 21, verse 12 and following. The fig tree is cursed because of unbelieving Israel in chapter 21, 18 and following. Then Jesus in chapter 21, verses 23 and following challenges the, uh, the, actually he is challenged, his authority is challenged in the temple. Then he's called out, he's calling them out in verses 28 to 32. Then he talks about him being the scandalon who's going to crush the um, Israelites for their unbelief in chapter 21, 33. Then in chapter 22, 1 to 14, um, he talks about them being cast out, cast out for unbelief. And then they're confounded in chapter 22, 15 and following. They're confronted in chapter 22, 23 and following. They're caught up short in chapter 22, 34 to 44, 32 or 34 to 40. They're confused in chapter 22, 41 to 46. Then they're condemned in chapter 23, 1 through 36. That's a lot of verses of condemnation, by the way. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, chapter 23. It's a big one. And then in chapter 23, at the very end, 37 to 39, you see Jesus weeping. He cried over Israel. So the crowds are, are fickle, they're cleansed, they're cursed, they're challengers, they're called out, they're crushed, they're cast out, they're confounded, they're confronted, they're caught up short, they're confused, they're condemned, and then Jesus cries over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not believe This is a sad story of unbelieving apostate Israel. The Jews for whom the Messiah comes are rejecting Jesus, but not these two blind Jews. Let's read about them now. Go back to chapter 20. Chapter 20, the final paragraph, beginning at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do? For you. And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they removed, they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the remnant. Why do I say that? Well, The story of the Jews is not one of a sad ending, but a happy ending, even though it's a tumultuous journey to get to the happy ending. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham, who's Abram, and he's called out of the Ur of Chaldees, and by faith, through his progenitor faith, as the father of faith, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. 
You have the promised land of the land, the seed, the blessing. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of the line that's uh, described throughout Genesis. And you have Joseph, who's the um, viceroy for Pharaoh during times of famine. And so you have the 12 tribes of Israel represented by the Joseph's 12 you know, the brothers, all 12 of them together representing those tribes. And that is where they are down in bondage in Egypt. And then you have Moses who's called um, out of the land of Midian, Exodus chapter 3. Tell, tell him, tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you or, or Yahweh has sent you. Moses goes as, as, as Christ's representative. And ultimately, he is the figure of leadership leading the children of Israel out of bondage, out of out of slavery, they wandered the wilderness for 30, 40 years, crossed Jordan miraculously into an army's march, a military march, to take the land of Canaan as the promised land, to fully be united and codified under the law of God to be God's covenant people, his covenant nation, the nation of Israel, for whom Messiah would be promised. And so Messiah is promised through the prophets, the minor and major prophets, um, there is a promise through um, the book of Zechariah, the book of uh, Jeremiah, the book of Israel, that one day the lion and the lamb will lay down together. There'll be a millennial kingdom. There's this great promise for the nation of Israel, and it's all going to be under the kingship and lordship of the greater David, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so this is the drama of Israel. But when Jesus came after the intertestamental period, the 400 dark years, here Israel had been taken away into captivity. They had been released and, and given grace one more time to rebuild the temple of Israel, which they did. And then they apostatized and they intermarried and they went pagan again and again. And ultimately things went dark. Messiah came. He's the light of the world and he's rejected. So it would be easy for you to go, man, that was plan A. And plan A stinks because it didn't work. It was a good idea, God, but plan B is the church. And so that's when the church age is born. Throw out the old, now we're the church. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. God gives very specific promises to ethnic Israel. But ethnic Israel has to be believing Israel. It has to be those who are believers. You don't just get in by right of the family that you were born into. You have to become born again into the family of God. And the church is picturing that as believers together, Jew and Gentile as one people. But if you look in the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, 4, you see there's the 144,000 that are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so you have believing Israel in the future that's there. And then Revelation 7, 9, this is all part of the greater Abrahamic promise where it says, after I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There's the great fulfillment through Israel, through believing Israel, that the witness of the world, where the world from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people have believed, and this is the great ingathering of the people of God. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the storyline of Israel, and then you have the ultimate fulfillment in heaven, where you have this glorious picture of Israel, believing Israel as a remnant, and you have people from all the nations believing. That's God's plan A. And that fail, that plan has never failed one iota. Nothing's ever gone off track. You say, why is that important? Because, Israel, because America is not 
the substitute for God's plan A that failed. We are not God's plan B nation. That is the nation of God. Now, God has given us great grace here in our country. He's given us freedom. I'm free, freely speaking right now. But I'm going to preach even if it goes bad here. I'm going to preach as long as I possibly can from whatever platform I can preach from. However dangerous it is, I, I want to preach. I was put on the planet here to preach. That's what I believe. But I believe it's for all of us to be heartened in the mission, to carry the torch of the gospel into the highways and byways and preach the word, to Bible study together, to meet freely. Your freedom of speech is not determined by the law of the land. You're free to speak because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know the king personally. And he told you to do it. So you preach the word. And we do it heartenedly, no matter what state of the state we believe our country is in. It's an election year, or it will be, and it's going to just be increasingly kind of awesome and awkward to watch or not watch things that are going on politically around us and have debates about that. But whatever is going on on that roller coaster ride, can I just tell you, preach the word. Preach the word. Give the gospel. Be on the mission. Be like Jesus, who sees two blind beggars, the most nondescript people in this little town on the way in 18 miles outside of Jerusalem and he stops and meets their need, which is the greatest need that needs to be met, which is transformation from the heart, evangelizing hearts. People want to reconstruct our country. I understand that sentiment, but you cannot substitute Israel and the the plan that God has for them with our country. We're not equal to that. We measure our success and failure as Christians according to God's greater plan that's described here in Scripture. It's what we have, and that's what gives us confidence. It's why we're looking at a text like this. This text answers why God's plan A didn't fail. Beginning with point one, the Jews were anticipating the true Messiah. These two, especially... We're anticipating the true Messiah, and they were doing it by faith. That's verses 29 to 31. I kind of break it down as subpoints. There were two, they were blind, and they were Jews. First of all, why were there two? Well, the accounts in Mark's gospel of this and Luke's account of this, there's only one, and it's blind Bartimaeus, but there were two. We know that because we read all three um, gospels in harmony with each other, and there were two. One was more demonstrative was outspoken, Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. He was known. He was an extrovert, obviously. He's Peter-like on behalf of the apostles. He's speaking out, demonstrative. And then you have the introvert, or the, the one who's not named, who's there. And you have two. Why were there two? I think there were two because um, there is a real sense in which the witness of two validates the Messiahship of Christ. You have two Jewish believers saying, this is the Messiah. Matthew's gospel is written to convert the Jews. That's why he wrote it. Marks and Luke's have different agendas, different audiences. Matthew is specific to say, this is the Messiah. And there are two who are saying it. You are the greater king. You are king, the greater king, son of David. In that line, And so we have the context here where there's a great crowd. And verse 29 says they went out of Jericho. I don't believe that this is the actual walled city that was um, stormed or, um, uh, you know, confronted by the Israelites where the walls came down. 
Um, I think this is a city that is uh, about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. It's uh, due east of the of the Jordan River, and um, they're, they're sort of coming down in this last final trek through this city. It's a palm tree, uh, more of an oasis city where two blind beggars are sitting there waiting on the roadside to beg alms and help and support from any of those passer, passer buyers who are going down to celebrate Passover. And that's, that's where we are. That's the setting. But there's a great crowd, and it, it's a big crowd. How big? Well, the Greek oxlos polos, the word polos is the word city. So it's like a city-like crowd. It's a large city. It's a big parade. It's a lot of fanfare around Jesus. Whenever Jesus is present, there's a large crowd until they leave him. <laughs> but, but he's compelling. His word is compelling. It's part of why we're gathered here right now because we're under Christ's word. And where his word is preached, people gather. But this crowd is not affirmed in its size, dynamics. It's actually in contrast to the two. You have the large crowd that's going with Jesus, aligning with Jesus, perhaps more superficially aligning with Jesus. The disciples are believers, but the crowds at, at writ large are just kind of associating with Jesus, his miracle ministry. They're amazed by Jesus, but they don't have what the two blind beggars have, which is insight into who Jesus is as Messiah. The, the c- crowd comparison to the two with this large crowd is uh, not something to be lost as you look at this text and feel what's here. They're coming out of the region of Jericho. Luke 18.35 says they drew near to Jericho. They were just coming out of the surroundings of Jericho. And they're five miles west of Jordan, 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was called the City of Roses, by the way. And they're traveling down, and they come upon two blind beggars. You see that in verse 30. And behold. So you have all this fanfare, this large crowd that's gathered. And behold, there are two blind men sitting by the roadside. It's amazing that Jesus would even take note of them whatsoever. But anybody who's open to Jesus, Jesus is open to them. Someone who's being opened by the Holy Spirit to know and see Jesus for who he is, Jesus is taking note of that person. Two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they, the two blind men, heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're blind. Bartimaeus, as I already mentioned, is the exuberant one, the son of Timaeus. Bar meaning son, like Bar, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, the apostle, was the son of his father, Jonah. Bar-Jesus, in Acts 13, is Elemas, who is um, the son of someone named Jesus. Um, it just means son of Bartimaeus. He was known. He had a demonstrative personality. And he's speaking out on behalf of Jesus, but so is the other. They're both crying out. Son of David. They are Israel's remnant. And there's two of them. They're blind and they're Jews. They're Jews. They knew something special was taking place. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew something that the crowd didn't know, either intuitively or the Spirit of God perhaps has already changed their hearts. I'm not sure. But they're seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith, even though physically they can't see him. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. When the seed of the word of God went into their ears, something was popping out of them. Son of David, son of David, you are the Messiah. 
It's an amazing contrast of what they are seeing through their blind eyes, through their hearts, in comparison and contrast to what the crowds were not really seeing at all. It's a massive entourage that's missing the point of what the two blind men are seeing in a deeper sense, son of David. This is the pre-triumphal Christ entry. This is like a preview where Jesus is being lauded with a messianic title. You are in the line of David. And I am so compelled by this, these blind men would be saying, that they're saying it with reckless abandon. They have already lost their sight anyway. Um, Culturally, they're beggars. And so they feel like they've got nothing to lose, only something to gain. And that's where God puts us a lot of times in suffering and circumstances. He'll take things from us. He'll, He'll limit us or have suffering befall us or lose something. And it's awful, but it does put you in a desperate situation where all you can do is cry out to the Lord. In in Mark's account of Mark 10, 48 through 50, in verse 50, when Bartimaeus is summoned by the Lord to come, come closer to him for healing, Bartimaeus does this. He doesn't solemnly walk up. It, It says, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Bartimaeus was a live wire. Okay, Jesus, I'm all yours. This is before he could even see. This is the assurance that this is truly Jesus. It is convictional. It's not superficial. It's convictional. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to align with Jesus. It's not enough to sign off on Christendom. It's not enough to try to save the country. Those are not saving dynamics. It's different than what happens on the inside when by conviction you say, you are God, you're the son of David. Someone cautioned the church and believers, don't be polite in prayer. Luke 18.1, always pray, do not lose heart, is what Jesus says. Pray without ceasing, James says. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall um, find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We are to pray and pray earnestly by faith. And that's what they're doing. They're crying out to the Lord. There's times of desperation where all we can do is pray and cry out for mercy. And that's what these two were doing. What by contrast did the crowd say? Look at verse 31. The crowd rebuked them. That's very strong language for what they did. How dare you, Bartimaeus? Sit down. Why why are you? crying out for mercy. Who do you think you are? We've got Passover to celebrate. We're on our way. We're hitting the road. We don't have time for this. This is just like how the disciples treated the parents who were just trying to get their kids up to Jesus for him to lay hands and bless them just a few chapters back. They're rebuking these two, the two who are representing the remnant of Israel, the two who are Believing Jews in the face of all of the unbelief that's coming in a week's time or all week long. All of this apostasy is held in check by two blind believing Jews. Do you see it? That's what this is here. This is a trailblazing marker that says, no, God has a plan that is in effect in full force. And that plan is hanging on these two blind beggars. 
Everything looks like it's going wrong, but these two blind beggars are believing. That's, that's how Christianity works. It's all going wrong. It's all going to pot. It's all going over the cliff. But here's a little window of something to hold on to. Isn't that what the Lord gives us? Look, a believer, a friend, a Christian relationship, a friendship, uh, a phone call. Uh, somebody is stirred. They're interested in the gospel still, even though all else is falling apart. That's what this is. The crowd saying, be silent, be silent. They were more blind to Jesus than these two physically blind ones. They didn't see Christ's true identity and they didn't see Christ's true mission. The blind beggars did. It's a real temptation of self-righteousness where they're condescending towards these two, where the two blind beggars are just fully just confident in the Lord. They've thrown off all self-righteousness, all self-consciousness. It's all about Jesus. The two blind Jews are counteracting with faith. They won't be shut down. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They, verse 31, look at the phrase here. But they cried out all the more. The more suppression, the more margin, marginalizing, the more sequestering the more they countered with faith. You can't shut us down. We will not stop crying out to the Lord. And they were persistent. And through that persistence, there was a validation of their faith. The Jews anticipated the true Messiah. That's one reason why we know plan A didn't fail, this anticipation. But secondly, we know that plan A was God's plan And it didn't fail because they're exercising saving faith in the true Messiah, verses 32 to 34. It says, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And I I just want to go back and stopping. It's such an interesting idea. Jesus, with this massive crowd, somehow hears these two who are standing up and he just stops. And I like to geek out with the Greeks sometimes. You kind of want me to do that. That's why you're at a Bible church. But it says, Kai, Stas, Ha, Jesus. And Stas is uh, where you get that word for stand or um, stopping. Sta is the kind of the, the, the root. It's this, just this moment of pause. And, and Jesus is stopping, and it's an it's a aorist, aorist active participle. And it means that. He's seeing the big picture of what's going on. Arao is where you get the word horizon or mountain range and eris tense. He's, he's seeing the big mountain range, the big picture, all of what's happening. He knows that this is a very pregnant moment filled with meaning, and he stops. Luke's gospel says that the next person he's going to interact with for ministry is Zacchaeus, the wealthy con man who's up in the tree. And they go to dinner. He's reaching out to people that are open, and he's leaving markers of... This is what it's all about, heart change and salvation and truth. And here we have two Jews that are believers. The last moment before they're going to apostatize, here are two. 
And he stops and accounts for them because they're being opened by the Lord. And he asks them a clearinghouse question just to dismiss all opportunism, all pragmatism to validate their motive. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? He knows what they want, but he's exposing them for who they really are. And they're saying, Lord, let our eyes be open. Master, we're coming in low. Please let us be made whole. It's loaded with meaning. It's a clearinghouse question, and it's a physical and spiritual request. It's a straightforward request. Let our eyes be open. And the reason we know that they're asking not only for physical healing is because of the way they address Jesus. He's the son of David, meaning he is God. He is Messiah who is God on earth. And it's amazing grace that they want. They want physical healing, but they are, they are saying with their heart that we are believers in you. Are they already believers? Well, it doesn't describe that specifically. We know that once you're saved, it's in a moment in time, it's complete, it's once and for all. They're saying, we are saved, we believe in you. You are Lord. In Mark's account, they address Jesus as rabbi, rabbi, Mark 10, 51, let me recover my sight, rabbi, teacher. We're coming under you. We're calling you king, paying homage, full allegiance with no reservation and no preconditions. That's faith. That's saving faith. Full allegiance without reservation with no conditions. You don't owe me anything. We just, I just need grace. I just need grace. That's what these two are saying. Be my savior. Helen Keller, who was a known believer, born blind. We know her story. She was bluntly asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? Her response, she said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. I mean, we we should echo that sentiment because conversion is seeing Jesus for who he is through your heart by conviction. Open the eyes of my heart that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Ephesians 1.18 is where Paul prayed that the illuminating work of the Spirit would happen in the hearts of the Ephesians. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened, he prayed. He called the, well, the writer of Hebrews said that we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, I think Nathan cited that earlier. Colossians 3.1, we're to seek the things that are above. Isaiah 6, historically, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. Acts 7.55 is where Stephen, the first martyr, as he was being stoned down in a pit, he looked up into heaven. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. First Corinthians 13, 12, we as believers, we, we see the glory of God as in a mirror dimly, kind of a dim reflection. But one day we'll see Jesus face to face. First John 3, 2, beloved, we're God's children now and we will, um, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's heaven, seeing Jesus face to face. This is, this is what they were calling out for. We know that because Luke 18, 42 says that Jesus said to him, meaning Bartimaeus and 
we infer that he's saying it to both of them. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. He's validating. You are believers. And I'm also going to give you physical sight. That's what he means. He's not saying drum up enough willpower to convince God to strong arm him to save you. That's the health wealth gospel. It's not that. Your faith, meaning I'm validating that you are true believers. And in that validation, I'm also granting you physical sight. It's amazing. Jesus left people blind on this earth, even though he came here. So them recovering physical healing isn't the first point of discussion. It's that they were blind spiritually and they see they're testifying to the Lord's illuminating work where they were able to see the Messiah as the son of David in contrast to a crowd that was fickle. That's what's going on here. Two blind Jews whose faith moved Jesus. How do we know that? Because it says, in stopping, Jesus called to them. He asked that question, and they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. And then verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Jesus was moved by them. He was moved by their desire, by their faith. The word splognos is there where it talks about someone's insides being moved. He felt their need. Let me ask this question. Do you feel people's needs like Jesus? Do you think about others? Do you care about whether they are blind and whether they need to see? We need to be moved like Jesus. We're stirred by a lot of things politically. We're stirred about whether plan A is failing or not. We're stirred about the climate, but are we stirred about others around us in the midst of a turbulent climate? Within their malady, Jesus healed these two inside and out. And both Jews were immediately and comprehensively healed. By the way, all true healing is immediate, comprehensive, it's irrefutable. In the same way, guess what? When you are saved, it's immediate, it's comprehensive, and it's irrefutable. You say, well, what if I've doubted my salvation? Well, that's what you've done. But your salvation is still immediate, comprehensive, and irrefutable. Once saved, always saved. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are signed, sealed, and delivered for heaven. You have the inheritance waiting for you in heaven. You got to go back to the beginning. If you're in your doubt phase, if you're in the fog, and you say, okay, what sins do I need to sort of clear up and be right relationally with the Lord? But I need to remember my first love. I need to remember that I am a believer first and foremost, and that He saved me. I'm not saving myself or keeping myself saved. It's what He did. I was blind, and He made me see. That's the assurance of salvation. That's what we have to know as believers. You got to come back to that. The spiritual healing that he does in the heart is like this kind of healing physically. You were blind and you now see. When you're saved, he creates a new heart inside of you. Old things have passed away. Everything is new. You've been bought with a price. You were dead. Now you're alive. This is a binary equation. You're either lost or you're found. 
And we as Christians have been found by the Lord. We're the ones whom Jesus stopped by the roadside. He saw you in your beggarly state. He saw you in your blindness. He heard your heart cry and he said, you can see. He touched your heart like he touched these blind men and their eyes and he gave them physical sight in the same way he gave you that spiritual sight. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, and this is the creation event that Paul's reflecting back on, let light shine out of darkness. Remember the let there be light moment. That's what Christ did. This same Christ has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He turned the lights on and you see Jesus for who he is and you love him. This is the miracle healing of salvation. How do we know these two blind Jews were saved? The last phrase in our paragraph, it says, they recovered their sight and followed him. Physical healing, but spiritual healing. They followed him. How do you know you're a Christian? Not only from going back to the beginning of when he saved you, but by examining yourself to say, am I following the Lord? We work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We, we have to look inside and look under the hood sometimes and say, am I following? Am I a believer? Am I producing the fruit of the spirit? Well, the biggest fruit of knowing you're a Christian is that you're a follower today. And that's what they were known as. These two blind Jews who had recovered their sight were known followers of Jesus. They weren't going to turn back. They followed him. The crowds in verse 29 were following him, but they were fickle and they would turn away. Verse 29, that same phrase, they followed him. The crowd did. But these two blind beggars, these two blind Jews who had now Gain sight, followed Jesus. They represent God's original plan A. It didn't fail. God's not failing today. Nothing's gone wrong on God's watch. It's all according to plan. Even the things that he's allowed that are horrible, which we can't blame God for, but at the same time, we can rest in the fact that this is his plan. It's in full force. This final physical Mercy, miracle, was proof that Jesus was not done with the Jews. There's reassurance here. Jesus is never fully popular. We're never going to be fully popular, but his plan is going forward. Jesus fulfilled and is fulfilling and will fulfill his promise to the Jews and he will also fulfill the ultimate promise of winning people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. It's uh, kind of the twofold dynamic in Romans 11. You have the engrafting of the church, which is we were grafted, Romans 11 verse 17, as a wild olive shoot grafted in among others into the nourishing root of the olive tree. We're, we're brought into the plan. When the church is saved, Jew and Gentile, we're grafted into God's plan A. That's how this is working. Because Romans eleven twenty five, 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers, of a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. Israel is in a blind stupor in general until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. That's when the 144,000 will believe. That's when the representation of the full remnant of the Jews will believe. When all the nations have been gathered in. It's all part of the plan. What does it mean to be a Jew who is saved while you've believed on Messiah? This is confirmed here in this text by two believers as truth. 
seeking their Messiah, wanting their Messiah, and following their Messiah. Likewise for you, what does it take for you to believe? Let's say you haven't believed. Here's the two witnesses. How about the word of God and the spirit of God? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus as he's revealed in scripture? Is the spirit confirming that in your heart that yes, you are a believer? God's plan has not failed in America. His truth is marching on. He's saving those who are believing in him. He's the savior of every one of you who, was, who will cry out in mercy to Jesus. Everyone. He won't turn you away. He grants the same mercy so that you, like these two, can say, I was blind, but now I see. Do we see Jesus? We do as believers. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will see him for who he is and you'll become his worshiper like they were.